Welcome to Side Talk, it's a podcast. It stars Corey Craft and Rachel. Stars is a funny word. Stars is a funny word. And Rachel Morgan and Charlie Sanders. Who just walked in? Hey, Charlie. And this is a musical podcast like the film Annette. It's gonna sing from here on. I'm probably not gonna sing. Oh my god. I might sing a little bit though. Oh, let's be done with this shit. What's this shit? That's my favorite song from Annette. Oh, isn't it? I, I wish they would have broken out with that. Then I would have liked the film. Okay, so I got one for you. Okay. I think you might guess it pretty quickly. I could be wrong. Hey, we'll see. But I have a little to add to it, even after we've after you've gotten it All or right. haven't gotten it. So there's a shark. It's a big old shark. Oh, It's a gigantic okay. old shark. Well, there are a couple options already. All right. And, of course, we're on a boat in the middle of the ocean. Uh-huh. And I'm like, wait, is that the guy from Counting Crows? The and guy from Counting Crows. It's not the guy from Counting Crows. I thought it was the guy from Counting Crows. Same hair. He's got a- Are you like, talking about a, Mario Van Peebles? I am talking about- He's got a green visor on. Um. Well, so you're talking about Jaws the Revenge. I am talking about Jaws the Revenge. I didn't even have to get into the play, pl- part where the shark is attacking a, a scuba diver. And that's the scene I saw. Okay. Uh-huh. And of course, the you got it. 1987. The tagline being, "This time it's personal." This time it's personal. What if what if uh, the shark from Jaws sought out the family of Chief Martin Brody, including Lorraine Gary, reprising her role as as Brody's wife. Yes. Roy Scheider is not in this movie, of course. As as he spared him, he had a little pride. Yeah, Michael Caine, however. Very much in this movie. It is. It is. Um, uh, and the story goes that, that he missed accepting his first Academy Award for Hannah and Her Sisters, the Woody Allen movie, because he was busy filming this movie. Well, um, everybody needs a paycheck, Corey. Sure. Well, and this one, clearly, they wrote some paychecks on this thing. Yeah. I, I was tipped off to this film and watched a scene from it because Aaron Penhaus, of course, our cinema manager, told me, uh, I've got one for you today when I was like, Who's got who's got something they want to throw out? Yeah, I got one for you. And this he's like Jaws the Revenge um sort of follow he's like Jaws follows Chef Brady's widow from from Amity to the Bahamas. Yeah. Follows her during the over the Christmas holidays. Uh-huh. So he's like, it's also a Christmas film, which I really, really appreciate. And he also said the shark roars. Yes. I jumped on really quick IMDB and I love the favorite top review. And the top review starts – I won't read the whole review because okay. you can go do it on your own. But I did want to point out that the top review started with this line. There is Montezuma's revenge and, there, and then there is Jaws, the, the revenge. Both provoke diarrhea. Oh, my God. Well, I've seen this movie and I don't remember that happening. Um. Yeah, well. Well – as as Michael Caine said about it later, he said, um, I, I've never seen the movie, but by all accounts, it's terrible. I have, however, seen the house that the movie paid for, and it's terrific. Right. So good for him. As another little plot point in the film, I guess Jaws starts out in Amity and kills the the son. The eldest the, son, maybe? Yeah, it kills one of the yeah. sons, and nobody knows it's happening because everybody's at a, at a a Christmas pageant and yep. they're singing too loud to hear the Jaws's revenge. Yep. Jaws, the revenge. You know, the sequels uh, to Jaws diminishing returns. I think it's safe to say yeah, well, one more thing and then we'll all let you go. Okay. Because Jaws, the revenge, I feel like it's, you know, it takes, it needs another minute. Did you realize that this is the direct sequel to Jaws two, ignoring yes. the events of Jaws 3d. 
I did realize that. Okay. that do you know I, who plays the eldest Brody son in Jaws 3D? I do not. Dennis Quaid. Oh, and a young you, Dennis Quaid, I would assume. Uh huh. And you've got Louis Gossett Jr. in uh, Jaws 3D as the um, the owner or manager or something of SeaWorld because the movie takes place at SeaWorld. Uh-huh. They build this like underwater like laboratory slash exploratory place, and of course, you know, there's a shark. Shark attacks it. In 3D, people get eaten. And this crazy motherfucker is the fourth and final installment in this enterprise. Yeah, somehow it's less plausible than what I just described happening in Jaws 3D. Uh, do you like this film? No, of course okay. not. I'm just making sure. Because this is, I, you never know, Corey. You never know. You know, there, we'll, we'll talk about Jaws, the original. <laughs> oh, yeah. Soon. Uh, soon. Uh, but uh, the sequels, you can keep them. I mean, Jaws 2 is okay, but it's not, you know, you, whoever directed Jaws 2 is no Steven Spielberg. We'll put it that way. Shocker. Yeah. For over one million years, Rachel and Corey have talked. And now, they share with you one of the greatest accomplishments of all time. Their list of the top 200 films. It's that time! That time when we talk about our favorite films, the top 200 favorite films. And, you know, as you're aware, we're really slowing things down a little bit. We're taking them four at a time. We're down to the top 12, and yeah. so today's installment will be numbers 12 through 9. Do you want to kick us off, Rachel? I'm going to do it. Okay. It's getting hot in here, number Uh-oh. 12. The next four films are exceptional films, as I'm sure you can imagine, I think. But no one is going to argue with me, except for Stephen King, about my number 12 film. Because my number 12 film from 1980 is the one... The only Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Funny that that appears at number 12 on your list. Yeah. Uh, we'll hear more about that in a second. I would assume. <laughs> it is one of the greatest films ever made. It does appear at number 12, but, you know, I it could at any point in time move into the top 10. And it would not be undeserved for that to happen. I don't need to spend a lot of time talking about The Shining. There's been an entire documentary made about this film there have been uh, there's probably podcasts just about the shining as you know this is one of the greatest films ever made it's it's a true work of genius it is uh, a miserable little beast of, of a film and i love every minute of it a movie i watch at least once a year yeah um and yeah i'll talk more about it in a second yeah genuinely so what's your number 12 my number 12 is a movie you don't like um it's uh, from 2002 it is spike jones's adaptation starring nicholas cage mm. chris cooper meryl streep and nicholas cage that's yeah. right. I said Nicolas Cage twice because yeah. he plays twin brothers Charlie and Donald Kaufman. Charlie Kaufman is the screenwriter. Donald Kaufman, a completely invented twin brother. Uh, the movie's about writer's block, and it's about the writer's block Charlie Kaufman himself found uh, in trying to adapt Susan Orlean's book, The Orchid Thief, into a film. Um, the movie still manages to be an excellent adaptation of The Orchid Thief, a book that I did read when I was in high school, so in love with this movie I was, in addition to being just a dizzying meta movie and a hilarious comedy um, of the sort that only Charlie Kaufman and Spike Jones seem to be able to concoct. Uh, This is probably my favorite work from either of those creatives, Um, one of my favorite 
Nicolas Cage performances ever, and that's saying something because you know I love me some Cage. Yeah. Uh, and every everything about it's great. Chris Cooper is amazing. He won an Oscar for it. Meryl Streep, I mean, one of her best performances, which again is really saying something. And you have a, a supporting cast in this thing to beat the band. Uh, Tilda Swinton, uh, Judy Greer. You've got uh, a fun cameo from from Maggie Gyllenhaal, uh, Catherine Keener. Uh, a lot of great. A lot of great performances in this thing. And I love this movie so much. Yeah, maybe we'll five-minute fight it. I need to watch it again. It's fine. I, it's not that I dislike. I think you, you preface this by saying I don't like it. I wouldn't say I don't like it. I just don't love it the way you love it. I love it a lot, as you yeah, can tell. Yeah, you do. It's way up there. Well, my number 11 is a sweet little film. Lovely film about a gentleman who, you know, out of the kindness of his heart, adopts a young boy. And then he's just really pursuing his, this, this entrepreneurial desires and trying to make the world a better place. Not okay. Uh-oh. You know, I'm lying. This is from 2007. This is there will be blood. Yeah. PT Anderson's there will be blood and there will be blood. There, there certainly will be. The promise is kept. Um, not in the way you think it's going to be. No. But it does. And I will tell you, again, I, I there's probably an entire podcast on this film as well, so I don't have to say a whole lot about it. But just what a fucking masterwork. And I think that I'm the only person in the history of the world that has that has had this experience, which is that uh, driving to, to teach a class two days ago, I just got this new book in the mail, a uh, bo- uh, desk copy, if you will, because as you know, as, an, as a fellow teacher, we get those. Mm-hmm. And on the cover, it's a book about editing, and on the cover is a picture of uh, that, that shot of Daniel Day-Lewis where he's sitting in the oil field just covered in oil. And the, and, the Derek is on fire. Yes. Yeah. And he's just sitting there looking out. And uh, I, I was just staring at that frame grab on the cover of that book for so long that I got a honk. Because the the light had turned, and um and so I thought, well, that's probably a first. That's probably the first time ever someone has lovingly stared at a screenshot from P.T. Anderson's "There Will Be Blood" and and missed a light because of it. it. It's kind of apropos. It's such a compelling movie and such a compelling central performance from Daniel Day Lewis that even a single frame of it captivated you. I mean, it's true. It um, is. It is a dare I say a perfect film. Oh, it's amazing. This is a movie that I saw like a million times after it first came out, and then I haven't seen it in a while. So one of these days I need to go back and rewatch it because I love it. I mean, what's not to love? Yeah, I think it's I've, it's strange and mean-spirited, and ugh, I could just keep going. Anyway, I won't. Um, what's your number 11? Well, my number 11 is a movie that you may have heard of because you just mentioned it. Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. <laughs> Uh, I think it's uh, one better than you do because okay. it's my number 11 and okay. it was your number 12, but we just talked about it. What else is there to say other than everything about it is amazing and it's just, it's just the best. I mean, every, everybody is great in it, including, and especially Shelley Duvall, who really, you know, sometimes if I just want to make myself angry, which is not often, but sometimes, you know, you're just like, Ooh, I gotta get, I gotta angry up my blood. Yeah. Uh, I'll go back and read like reviews of this movie from when it first came out talk about some people really missing the mark on this thing you know shocking i I just don't understand it um but but saying that like the movie is is over the top and campy and shelly duvall is ineffectual in that performance that's a bizarre get out of here get out of bizarre read on this absolutely not everything is exactly as uh stanley kubrick 
intended it to be, and uh, the result of that is one of the most viscerally terrifying movies ever made. Uh, and on top of that, um, as I said just a few minutes ago, it's a movie that I watch at least once a year because it's really damn entertaining too. Yeah, and it's funny. It's got like pitch black humor, admittedly, but it it does have a pretty good amount of humor. Mostly courtesy of Jack, who goes full Jack in this I'd movie. I'd argue Shelley Duvall, too. I don't know that it was intentional, but there is something about her stature on those stairs, no. waving that baseball bat. And it's just, I can remember being a kid. Like, when I was a kid, I think I mentioned I tried to watch this thing for years. But when I finally got around to being able to get all the way through it, and then it became, you know, a sort of a, a slumber party staple. Yeah. I can remember roaring laughing at this with friends during slumber parties. As strange as that may seem, just because... Sort of Shelley Duvall swinging that bat, the her some of the weird shit she does in it, you know it's, you know, and and then there's the the really mysterious moments too that yeah. as a kid just blew my mind, which is like when the door opens and you've got the the you know, the the the, the bear, dog the dog the dog suit. he's just like blowing that dude yeah the BJ but the, I was like what what the fuck I mean there's no I mean that that is a detail that comes from Stephen King's novel yep it does but it's it's plucked completely out of the novel sans context and Kubrick was just like, yeah, it'll just be a crazy thing that she sees. But it's also such a shocking moment, you know, in the film that it makes perfect sense. I I think it's actually a really great example of how you, uh, of a way in which you get the essence, even though against, uh, I have to acknowledge the author disagrees with me here, but how you get the essence of it, of a book that's what 500 or 600 pages or something. Yeah. And and into a, a hundred minute film. Like that's how you do that kind of thing. Right. Is this, it's, it, it, you, there, and there is no explanation. It's just like, what the fuck is happening? So anyway, um, you know, we said there wasn't anything else to say and yet here we We, are talking about it. We managed, we managed. Great film. All right. We're in our top 10 now. Yeah, we are. Here we go. What's your number 10? My number 10, you could probably guess it. At least you're going to guess that it's in my top 10. Okay. It is from 1984. Yeah. Okay. It is directed by Wes Craven. Yep. It is A Nightmare on Elm Street. Kind of expected this to be a little higher, but it makes sense. It's got to be in the top ten. Of course. There's no way around it. Introducing Johnny Depp. It is a fucking amazing film. Yeah. Talk about funny. Talk about dark. Talk about, I wouldn't say terribly scary, but there is, it is eerie. And I do remember being young enough that it was, there were, there were some moments. And I love a good slumber party scene. There's a bit of a slumber party scene. Uh, it just it also doesn't hesitate to eviscerate its characters. No, it does not. Really early on, or send them into a blender and blend them right. up into just goo without any kind of apology. It yeah. just it shreds and dices. And uh, I like this thing. And I, I've. I, I like everything about this film, and one of my favorite threads. And I actually, when we did, we did a sort of special salon one one year where we did, you know, ridiculous powerpoints. And my my powerpoint was how drunk is the mom in Nine Nightmare on Elm Street? I remember this very and well. And it's a really great thread. Her dr- just getting that bottle of vodka out of a linen closet. All of that shit is really funny and really fun to watch. Yeah. It's Love a, it's a great movie. It's a great movie. How do you feel about the sequels? I like them. Yeah. I like them. I think, you know, Freddie becomes more and more funny. Yeah. Uh, but I think that I've, it's not one of those films that takes that turn, right? It's, it's not a series. It's not a franchise that decides that we're going to 
take this character and really take him on a sharp right to make this more friendly or this or that. Freddie's really funny in the first one. Yeah. Like, you know, I'm your boyfriend now. That thing, that kind of stuff is happening in the first film. And I do think they turn the volume of, up on that a little bit. But, and of course, we, we all know Nightmare 2 and and, and all that, that's hovering around that film. But they're all wholly enjoyable. Yeah. Uh, it may get more fun and more ridiculous and more funny, but so yeah i think i i tap out after four um after the dream child i think that's four um yeah. but but you know they all have dream warriors moments. is it dream warriors or is it dream child? dream warriors is three three okay. which is really that's probably the best sequel as far as i can remember yeah. i think that's the one that's set in the uh mental hospital where nancy is a patient oh, yeah. um and that's got a lot of like really inventive kills and gore effects and things like that but yeah. um they're all fun i mean you know what what can you say about it it's just one of those enduring slasher franchises that i invariably even when it's not very good i still have a really good time with it i like them all i this is a deep dive for me because my it's been many years now since i've written it but my, my thesis for for my master's in film i focused on children and adolescence and cinematic horror with yeah. a with a with a focus on the 19 late 1970s and throughout the 1980s when you have a lot of teen horror and um horror with children like children of the corn so nightmare on elm street was a big one for me because it is such a great example of something that happens across the genre especially across this sort of teen horror genre and that is that you've got Kids that nobody will listen to. Yeah, nobody believes them. It doesn't matter. They're they're blamed for shit they didn't do. And it's such a it's such the core of a of, of an entire genre. And this film is is such an amazing beacon of an example of that. And I remember feeling really connected to this to this film as a junior high school kid. Mm-hmm. I think mostly because that feeling of and a, a, a lack of control in your life, even though you're becoming an adult. And that is seeped in this thing. So, you know, when you look at this and you're like, what a silly horror franchise piece, there is more to it than that. Sure. And and I love that about it, too. So anyway, I'll, I'll hush now because, as I mentioned, I've written an entire thesis about it. I'm happy to email it to you. If you'd like to read it, you'll be probably the only one, including my <laughs> committee chair. <laughs> All right. Well, my number 10 um, is a shift away from from the horror genre. We've spent a little time there. Yeah, we did. Um, uh, My number 10 is Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing from 1989. Uh, His masterpiece um, and one of the best films about American race relations ever made um, taking place. Um, on one city block in Brooklyn, uh, on one particularly sweltering day as tensions flare, um, and, um, well, things get out of hand. Um, but until that happens, you know, it's a really humanistic, lovely, um, patient, attentive, beautifully written character piece that shows all of these characters with, equal amounts love and criticism you know there there are no good guys here there are no bad guys here they're just people trying to make it and they they crash into each other and they clash and and conflicts arise and tragedy ensues um it's probably got one of the best ensemble casts ever assembled yeah. for a major motion picture um and um it's just brilliantly written and evocatively directed um in ways that have since become Lee's 
specialty, um, but perhaps this represents a height that he hasn't um, reached again. And look, that's not a slight against Spike Lee. You know, he makes what I think is one of the best movies ever made at a relatively young age. Yeah. And if he hasn't uh, quite returned to those heights, well, I mean, like, you know, Orson Welles never returned to the heights of Citizen say, Kane. He's, he's in good company. Yeah, he's in good company. And it's not like he hasn't made a bunch of other movies that I love. I've mentioned a lot of them on this list so far. A bunch of other movies I would call masterpieces. Um, he's just one of our most vital uh, filmmakers, one of the most important American voices in cinema. Um, and he has been, you know, pretty much since his debut in the eighties, his, uh, his just immediate sort of burst onto the scene. Um, but, but do the right thing is, is it, as far as I'm concerned, this is just an amazing movie. It's wildly again, entertaining, um, and just a vital, important film. Um, you know what else? What else can you say about it? I mean, I, I'm sure that everybody listening to this has seen "Do the Right Thing." Probably, um, most likely, most mo- likely. most likely. And if you haven't, for some reason, um, get to it. I mean, it's just it's just the best. Yeah, very colorful film. Interesting one. We did a book film club we around did. us, and it was a that was a great book film club. It was that that was one that was a discussion I moderated because yeah. you know that movie is. Really, really important to me, um, and um, that's why it's my number ten. Yeah. Well, you mentioned we've been uh, spending a lot of time in the horror genre, and you know, while there will be blood is not a horror film, it is a really fun film. I think if, if anybody's looking to do a second, third, or tenth watch of this, it is a really fun film to really try to apply that that horror structure to. Yeah. And read that thing as a horror film, and it it plays completely differently if you put that context on it. And totally. I think that's a really fun experiment. But my number nine is not a horror film. Maybe. Okay. My number nine might surprise you a little bit. It is from 1955. It is Nicholas Ray's Rebel Without a Cause. That didn't surprise me a ton because I know that you really like this movie. I love this film. I remember being the first time I saw this film. I was in high school, and I. Somehow, I think it was just must have been on, you know, like the one of the Turner channels sure. at the time. And I landed on it and it it was the opening scene where he's laying on the ground. It's this the part where he's laying on the ground yeah. and it's, I think, shot in CinemaScope. And even on my little television, I was like, what what is this? Right. Like I, I recognized that it was James Dean, somebody who I, you know, I, I at this point I had seen I think I'd even seen Giant. I'd seen some other things. And I really thought that I, I thought a lot about James Dean at this time. Like I thought he was an amazing actor and, you know, I knew, I knew a good bit also being a big Smith fan at the time. Was, um, but I, when I stopped to watch this thing, James Dean catches my eye and the laying on the ground shit catches my eye. And I was like, what the fuck is this? How in the hell am I stopping and feeling like I'm watching something super innovative that was made how many years ago? Yeah. How many decades ago? And it does. It reads that way, especially especially the way this thing opens. The first 15 minutes of this is just incredibly innovative and still feels that way today. And overall, talk about painting a world. You really feel like you've just dropped yourself, just fallen into this 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 world this other world. It is such a gorgeous, amazing film. And by the way, two people have never been this attractive on screen. Two yeah. people have never, two people in the history of humankind, two people have not shared a space that were this fucking attractive. Two people that we then lost right. well, way too young. Right. I mean, one 
considerably younger than the other, but still. But it's almost tragic losses. James, totally. And James, James Dean is so attractive in this thing, but it's almost feels wrong. It's almost like that can't be a human being. That's how good looking he is. And, and, on top of that, to be as talented as he was and to bring the performance that he brings, there's so many memorable things about this film. And it's just a it's a gift. It is such a gift. I, I love this thing. The I think, you know, you'll you'll never there's just shots I think about time and time again when he's sort of drinking the milk and puts the milk jug against his head. And there's mm-hmm. just these things where I'm like, I don't know why it's so captivating, but it is. It's a great fucking movie. It's brilliantly directed too. Yeah, I mean, Nicholas is. Ray is, is amazing. Um I think we talked about his film, Johnny Guitar, which was on my list. Um, And he's got a lot of movies that are always, they're just a little more off kilter than you expect going in. There's just something about them uh, that's really captivating. Rebel Without a Cause, as you said, filmed in Cinemascope with those wonderful L.A. locations. I mean, there's a reason that this movie is iconic, like literally iconic. And it's not just James Dean. That's it's part not. of it. It's not. That's, that's part of it. Or Natalie Wood, for that matter. But or Salminio. It's, it's not. It's all. I mean, I, I'd say it's just. It's there's some magic to the combination of those stars um, and that director and those locations and and that time. Yeah. Um, that that really just makes something that has instantly sort of entered um, the the cinematic lexicon. You know. Yeah. I mean. My students uh, have probably not seen a James Dean movie. I mean, there are only like three of them, right? They probably haven't seen any of them, but they they recognize James Dean. I right. mean, it's his his screen persona is as instantly recognizable as Charlie Chaplin's Little Tramp character, or Marilyn Monroe, or sure. John Wayne, or any number of other uh, iconic screen presences. And and I think that's that's not entirely due to this movie. But it's mostly due to this movie. You're probably right about that. And I mean, just, I mean, in addition to that, just the, you know, again, it, it has a lot to do with the, the, the mystery around his death, so to speak, the, yeah. the sort of legend and that the, the ghost that he has left um, behind, that's probably a big part of it. But I think this film, yeah, it's that the red jacket and the, yeah. that's the thing is like, you're, let's not underestimate the work that's being done just on costumes. Yeah. And on props, and it's god damn, this thing is gorgeous. And see, I, I got to see it a couple of years ago back in the theater. I was only it was this this was an amazing moment in my mm-hmm. life, truly. And that is that I I think it was Phantom or Phantom or whatever it is. That yeah, this. that they do the TCM things yeah. every once in a while. So they did a re-release, and I went to the multiplex to see this, and and they put it in one of the bigger rooms, the multiplex, and I was the only one in the room. It was oh. just me. And Salminio and James Dean and Natalie Wood. It was just us. And I, I was like, this is this is incredible experience. And I just sat dead center of that theater by myself and watched this film and just took it in. And it was as if I'd seen the film for the first time in many yeah. ways, too, because you cannot translate color in the way that color is treated in this film. You cannot translate that onto a small screen. Yeah. I don't care how great of a television you have. This thing was meant to be watched a particular way, and and when it's got that size and scale and color, it's it's just amazing. That's so Cinemascope. It, I got really really lucky to have seen that by myself uh, on that moment. Ah, so that sounds awesome. It was it was incredible. Yeah. So anyway, that's my number nine. Rebel without a cause. Well, my number nine um, is one of the 
best, probably the best concert film ever made. You ever want to see me cry? I mean, there are a lot of things you could do, as you know. I could, yeah, um, I could just mention, like, I don't know, <laughs> and, your boyfriend, Woody Allen. Sure. Oh, God. That's, he is not involved with this. Um, the film is is Jonathan Demme's Stop Making Sense, the Talking yeah. Heads concert film. Um, you, you just need to put on, you know, David Byrne dancing with a lamp, and I'm just a wreck, you know. Um, or the perform the performance of um, Naive Melody, This Must Be the Place, in that movie is, um, you know, iconic in its own way. But but everything about this movie is just one of the most joyous celebrations of art and collaboration uh, and music. Um, ever committed to film. Um, it helps that Jonathan Demi is such an empathetic filmmaker. Um, we've talked a good bit about Demi because a lot of his movies um, are on my top 200 list. I think he's just one of the best filmmakers to have ever done it simply because he loves people and he is interested in people and he is interested in catching those little moments that other filmmakers overlook. And in the context of a concert film, um, you know, training his camera on the band as one by one, they come out onto the stage song after song. Um, If you haven't seen stop making sense, well, first of all, turn this off and go fucking watch it. Um, but if you haven't seen stop making sense, um, it begins with David Byrne coming out onto stage with his guitar and a tape deck. And then Tina Weymouth comes out and then, you know, one, um, after another, um, with each successive song, the band assembles onto the stage and the set is assembled around them on the stage until about halfway through, um, the, the set of songs, the full band is out there and we're off to the races. Um, I love talking heads anyway, so it's not a huge imposition for me to listen to their music in the context of this. Um, but if you're not familiar with talking heads, uh, stop making sense is such a joyous experience, such a lovely, wonderful experience that it will make you a fan. Um, this is a movie that I would just about do anything to see on the big screen. And I'll tell you what, this recent follow-ups, uh, David Byrne's American Utopia, yeah. directed by Spike Lee, not a bad follow-up. In yeah. fact, it's just as wonderful. And that's that's a performance I had the privilege of seeing in person when it came cool. to Birmingham. Um, with that tour, uh, which was one of the best things I've ever seen in my life. Uh, so if I can't see, um, the stop making sense performance live, which I can't because I wasn't alive when this movie was made, um, that was the next best thing. So anyway, number nine, stop making sense, the best concert movie ever made and just a movie that I love to death. Man, we should do a concert film series at the cinema that'd be fun listen well, we'll all talk. you have to do is tell me where and and when and that'll be fun yeah well and you know we're i know this is a there there's some connectivity here but right now and and by the time this podcast airs it may not be the case maybe gone but right now we're screening the nowhere in that's right which i haven't gone to see that yet i yeah. would like to adjacent adjacent yeah, yeah. so anyway well, we got a few more to get to in We've future got eight episodes. More. It's getting close. Yeah, it it's is. It's getting close. So we're stay we're tuned. narrowing things down. Uh, email us at podcast at sidewalkfest.com uh, with your thoughts on our favorite movies, especially if they're positive. 
I guess you could email us negative thoughts as well. Uh, but we are curious to hear your favorite movies. If you agree or disagree with us, email us. We'll see you next time. Bye. Well, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Side Talks. We're your own personal cinematic baby and sporty. The Spice Girls. Yeah, your baby. I understood that reference. Your baby. I, I would almost have to be baby. Your baby. Um, who is, I'm not, I wouldn't be Posh Spice. You wouldn't and, be sporty. No, of course not. Uh, the you scary wouldn't be Spice. Ginger. You and, wouldn't be scary. Yeah, so by default, I think I am baby. Your baby. Yeah. Your baby. That's okay, though. Is it? She's all right. Is it? Is she? Um, thanks Isn't for she? I know I'm now I don't know. I don't baby's my least favorite, but you jumped on the chance, so okay. take it. Anyway. She, she seems okay. Mm, is she? Does she? Okay, all right. I don't you now I'm confused. What do you know about the Spice Girls anyway, Corey? Well, there nothing. were five of them. And I, I heard all their songs in the nineties. You know and nothing. I saw Spice World. Oh, you did? Of course. I saw it in the theater. Anyway, I saw Spice Girls live too, and I have a Spice Girls ring. So Do you I really? I win. Uh, well, I, I win. If it were a competition, which it isn't, you would win. I win. Yes. I win. Thanks to Batwall Studios. Thanks to Revelator Coffee. Revelator, our sponsor, making delicious coffee every day, just a block from my house, which is not relevant to the sponsorship. I just thought I'd mention it. I might even stop there tomorrow morning That's to a get good idea. some coffee. Start the day off right. I, I look. Anything I can get to start my day off right, right at this point. Right. Um, I'll it's take September, it. y'all. And boy, is Revelator delicious. So thank you, Revelator, for your generous sponsorship of our nonsense. Thanks for listening. Is that it? Batwell Studios Podcast Division. Your words, our expertise. <laughs>